reading version, but still very accurate and true to the original language, is the New Living Translation. Um, so, but I'm gonna use the NIV. We're gonna go big on the Bible, so just wanna encourage you, just use it, love it, bring it with you, uh, make it a regular part of your life. So, uh, this is my favorite passage of scripture. Ephesians 2, one through 10. I think it's the best passage of scripture in all of the Bible. Now, you may have different criteria for that, uh, but uh, Micah, are you in here somewhere? Can I ask you to turn me down a little bit so I'm not bringing you as much and I will, uh, I'll just talk louder. Uh, thank you. Uh, I used this phrase last week. What you believe determines your actions. Can we, we get on board with that? Like, if you believe that the other car coming to the intersection is not going to stop, you're going to stop. But what you, what you believe will determine what you do. Uh, so for instance, for some reason, you felt like it was important to be here today. Maybe that was just to like, shut up a spouse. Uh, but for whatever your reason, whether it was a good reason or not, you felt like it was a worthy trade, and so you, you showed up here. Uh, so here we are. Your beliefs, they determine your actions, but they also determine a lot of other things in life. Your beliefs determine how you treat people. If you think that person's dangerous, you're gonna act with caution. Uh, your beliefs determine how you judge other people. Anybody ever here ever seen someone else and sort of subconsciously thought, yeah, I'm better than them. I know you have, so don't raise your hand. Don't, don't say, oh, Pastor Kelly, you're terrible. I think we've all done things like that. Uh, your beliefs will determine your career choices, your attitude about money, how you spend. Your beliefs will determine the way you relate to other people, even your closest relationships. Um, if, if I believe that I can trust you and that you're for me, that's going to influence how I act towards you. You really could say that what you believe, for the most part, determines your experience of life. Now, there's some things that happen that you have no control over, but what you believe, in many ways, determines your experience of life. So I'd say it's pretty important to get those beliefs right, isn't it? It's important to believe as accurately as we can. But one of the problems we run into is that not all beliefs are created equally. Like some of them are extraordinarily important and some of them really aren't that important. But oftentimes we have trouble deciding which or which that ever happened to you. Uh, so as an example, what's the best movie of all time? Go ahead, what do we get? Anybody? Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick. Wow, instant classic, okay. Anybody else? Sound of Music, okay, an actual classic, I like it. All right, one more, anybody over here? Greatest story ever told, what's your? Evan Almighty, also a classic. Um, well, I'll just set the record straight right now and say, the greatest movie of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. Come on now, George Bailey's internal struggle uh, is so compelling. And if you didn't get that one, that's okay. It's okay to be wrong. Now you know. Uh, it's probably an overstatement for me to say that it's the greatest movie of all time. It's totally subjective. And if you don't agree with me, it actually doesn't matter. Like what I believe is not that big a deal. Just what I believe about the greatest movie ever is what I believe has almost no bearing on your life. But some people will take things that actually they seem important at the moment and then, but in reality, they're not like ultimate. Like I have um, a friend, uh, she's, she's in her 40s, and okay? this is not a young person. Her and her sister have this lifelong relationship that was completely severed a couple of years ago because her sister decided that uh, if you're gonna vote for the other guy for president, I don't think we should be related anymore. I don't think we can have a relationship. Uh, that's a little bit of a miscalculation on the importance 
uh, of someone's belief, isn't it? The idea that your political affiliation is somehow more important than the bond of family. I kind of think maybe she just got caught up in something emotional right there and totally misjudged, uh, in my opinion. There's a lot of beliefs that need to be discussed, uh, maybe even debated, and then there's some that just need to be dealt with. Like, yeah, just agree to disagree. There's very few that actually are ultimately important that are like, I'm willing to divide over this, I'm willing to die from this. There, there shouldn't be that many beliefs in your life that rise to that level. But what you believe about God should be on the top of the heap. And here's why. Because what you believe about God will determine what you believe about you and what you believe about other people, what you believe about the world. A.W. Tozer, he said this, I'd love for you to just get this quote in your head. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's on the next slide, on if you want to throw that up on the screen for me. Um, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. You know, just let that sink in for a second. And, and if it's not working, don't worry. God will still be on the throne. Uh, what you believe about God determines what you believe about yourself. Am I valuable? Am I not valuable? It's the most important thing you believe in your entire life. It determines what you believe about everybody else, everything else. So what do you believe about God? Is he a person or is God force? Is he near or is he far? Is he loving? Is he kind or is he angry? Is he personal or is he aloof? Is he distant? Does God have a plan for you? And if he does, is it a really specific, narrow plan that you can easily screw up and make a mess of? Or is it sort of a broad, general plan where he gives you lots of choices in the middle? Does God like you? I mean, if you believe the Bible, you know he loves you, but do you think he likes you? Uh, what do you think? What do you believe about God? Because that will determine what you believe about everything else. Okay, now most of us are gonna formulate those beliefs on one of two things, on, on what the Bible says about God, or on our own personal thoughts and emotions. And okay, we all came into this room with experiences, uh, that have made us who we are. We all have a natural disposition that has made us who we are. And so we're going to formulate our beliefs on God based on what the Bible says, something outside of ourselves, or kind of just on what we want him to be like. Psychology would even say you're going to formulate your view of God just kind of based on your interaction with your own father, uh, which may be awesome or it might be really terrible. But well, we run into this problem when we formulate our view of God based on ourselves. The problem is, if you have a view of God based on who you are, and I have a totally different view of God based on who I am, what happens when those things contradict each other? Like if I say God does love us, and you say God does not love us, who's right? We can't both be right. We need something objective to tell us who God is. It can't just come from inside. So that brings us to Ephesians 2 which is going to clarify some really important things about your relationship to God. Okay, so what we call the book of Ephesians, it's actually a letter. Uh, in fact, most of the books in the New Testament that we call books are actually letters. The book of Ephesians was written about the year 60 AD to the Christians in the region around a city called Ephesus. And it's important to know that because it, it, was, it was a letter written by what we call the Apostle Paul to the whole church there. It wasn't written to a specific person. And that's important because it means that it was written to all the Christians. He didn't know who was going to hear it or who was going to read it. It was just written to all Christians. And that's how we know that it's for us, too. 
not just for that specific person. So I'm just going to walk through these things. I'm going to take it in five pieces, uh, five truths, five foundational truths about you and God. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, this is what it says. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm like, man, that's like lofty, spiritual-sounding language. Like, make sense out of that for me, Paul. So I'll just tell you the first truth about that, what it says. Evil is real, and I'm a part of it. We're just going to get to the bad part right off, right off the bat, okay? We don't really like to talk about the ideal of evil. And honestly, when I encounter someone who does want to talk about evil, I have a tendency to kind of label them a little bit of spiritual weirdo, and sometimes they are. Uh, you know, it's just not like... It's just, it's just something that kind of creeps us out and it feels weird. We just, it's not part of our daily vernacular, okay? But here's how we know. Let me give you a couple examples. Ways that we know evil is real. According to Education Week, there were 51 school shootings in 2022 that resulted in injury or death. Anybody cool with that? That feel okay to anybody? I, I didn't think so, but everyone knows that's a problem, okay? No. If someone was, had an atheistic view of the world, there is no doubt, if they were consistent with their beliefs, what they would have to say is, well, that's not evil, that's just natural selection. Nature has decided, the strong survive. Anybody okay with that? That's not a good answer. I don't feel okay with that. Neither does anybody else. No sane person would say that, because when you get right down to the real world stuff, instead of theoretical musings, we all know evil is real. We can all feel it. If there's no evil, then why do people fly airplanes into buildings simply for the purpose of killing other people? If there's no evil, just natural selection makes no sense. When evil hits us hard enough, we can't deny it. Ephesians tells us that if not only is evil real, but that we're all subject to it. He says, all of us lived among them at one time. You know, I totally reject the notion that we're born good and become corrupted. I, I completely reject that notion. And I'll give you an example of why. The Bible says that we're born with a sinful nature. Let's give you a practical example. Uh, well, my daughter, you know, right here, when she was just an infant, I mean, just a couple of months old, she was laying on the living room floor on a blanket, you know, just being a pile of goo, because that's what babies do. And our son, Micah, who was just a toddler himself, he picked up a toy, lifted it over his head, and said, Sorry, and then spiked it right on her forehead. Did you teach him that, Spirit? I didn't teach him that. It was just in there. Okay? Now, Paul says, you were by nature the object of wrath. It's, it's part of our nature. And you could say, yeah, but he was just a toddler. He didn't know it was wrong. And I'd say, then why did he apologize? Because he knew it was wrong. We didn't teach him to do that. It was just in there. And I hate to say it, it's in you too. It's, it's part of how we're born. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Not bad, not bad in your sin, dead in your sin. That's kind of worse than being bad. There's something really important here. He says, like the rest, 
We were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, so the theological principle is that sin entered into the world through one person's decision. When Adam, specifically in the Bible says Adam, but Adam and Eve, uh, when they chose their act of rebellion against God's way, way back in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity was infected, including you. I know, welcome to Center Church. So glad you're here this morning. And we're, we're born with a sinful nature, and because of it, Paul says we were by nature deserving of wrath. Some translations say we were by nature the objects of God's wrath. If you wonder why the world is such a mess and why life is just hard and unfair sometimes, it's because of that. That's the reason. Because sin came into the world and we've all been infected with it. By nature, we are dead in our sins, the objects of God's wrath. Okay, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. There's five of them. Um, and we got the bad one out of the way. And number two is, is much better. But without the bad news, we'd never know the good news, right? It wouldn't make, it wouldn't make sense. So uh, my friend Andrew, he calls number two, he calls it God's big butt. We want to. There we go. Number two, truth number two is, I don't need to be better, I need grace. You don't need to be better, you need God's grace. Next verse, verse four, it says, but... Because of his great love for us, even though we were dead in our transgression and sin, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. This is, this is the good news. And so here's what happened. Your status made a significant change right there. Because of God's love for you, he made it possible for you not to go from bad to good, although that's great too. If you want to go from bad to good, I'm on board with that. I, I think you should. But the shift that's made is that it went from being an object of God's wrath to being the object of God's mercy. You went from being dead to God to being alive to God. Okay, now think about that for a second. Apart from Christ, you're dead to God. The object of God's wrath. You just think about that logically for a second. Is there something worse that could possibly happen to you in all of the universe than being the object of God's wrath? I can't think of anything worse than that. Uh, that that's about as bad as it gets. You know, maybe in this moment we're kind of in this climate-controlled room, and you're like, yeah, you know, once you stop talking, we'll crush some nachos and watch football. We're doing okay at the moment, but think about the idea of being the eternal object of God's wrath. You know, the Bible says that every good thing comes from God. Here's what it means to be eternally condemned. Separated from God, right? Separated eternally from every good thing. From every good thing. That's, that's bad news. Being the object of God's wrath is, is awful. To be under God's judgment. But by His grace, He saved you from eternal death and wrath and made you the object of His mercy. Eternally alive. If there's something better that you could possibly be for all eternity, eternity than being the object of God's mercy, I can't think what that is either. So what I want you to see in this verse is that receiving God's forgiveness doesn't mean that you clean yourself up, you fix all the things you're doing wrong, and you stop being bad, and then you start being good. That's, that's actually not what it means. Receiving God's forgiveness means that you were dead, destined to the wrath of God, and now in Christ, you're alive to God. You've come under his love and mercy. 
That's why the gospel is good news. Not bad to good, dead to alive. Wrath to mercy. It's not about being better, it's about receiving grace. I don't need to be better, I need grace. Number three, truth number three, God's plan is to bless me. God's plan is to bless you. Verse six, it says this. It says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God's plan, when he raised Jesus from death to life and he overcame sin on your behalf, his plan was that he could pour out his love and his grace and his kindness on you for all eternity. That's, that's his plan. God's plan is not to make you good. God's plan is to bless you. God's plan is that you would live from here on out through all eternity under the covering of his love and grace. His plan is to bless you. I know sometimes I go through life anyway, and I think, I wouldn't want to bless me. <laughs> uh, you know, like I look in the mirror and like I just have this tendency to see all of the things that I can need to improve and could get better. But that's not the way God sees you. He sees you through the perfection of Christ. His plan is to bless you. Truth number four, and this is a big one, especially if you grew up in a church environment, okay? Number four is, I don't work for God's favor, I receive God's favor. That's different. I work for a paycheck. Receiving a gift is a totally different thing. I don't work for God's favor, I receive it. Verse eight, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, you don't earn it, so that no one can boast about it. The life of God's people, as you read through the Bible, if you start at the beginning right all the way to the end, the life of God's people has always been a life of faith. What God wants for you to do is put your trust and your hope in Him. In fact, the book of Hebrews actually tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. God's not pushing you to perform for him. He's pushing you, or should I say calling you, to trust in him. Um, that's much better news than trying to perform, isn't it? Because performance is exhausting. You ever tried to be perfect? Uh, we have this weird system in our society. Uh, we sort of frown on the idea of like arranged marriages. You know, that's like an old archaic thing. Uh, back in the days that you read the Bible, people would get married at like, You'd see girls who were like 13 years old getting married, and that's like, whoa, that's way out there for us. But here's what we do in our society. Uh, we sort of tiptoe around, put on like our best face, and try to figure out if the other person likes us, doesn't like. Once we make a connection, then we spend like, you know, some length of time, uh, could be months, could be years, like trying to make sure they don't see any of our flaws until we get to the altar. After that, we can finally relax. But, but we like spend that whole like dating engagement period sort of trying to trick the other person into thinking that we're who they want us to be. Uh, that's kind of a messed up system, isn't it? I don't know how that got started, um, but wouldn't it be awful if God worked that way? Because he knows everything. It's pretty exhausting trying to trick God into thinking that somehow you're good enough for him. And the Bible says you don't have to. You don't work for God's grace. You receive God's grace. That's good news for me. Here's how receiving God's grace works. Okay, it's a pretty simple process. Number one, you understand that you're by nature separated from God because you're not perfect. The Bible calls it sin. Your imperfection separates you from a perfect, 
holy God. I think that makes sense. You can't mix something that's perfect with something that's imperfect. God won't do that because then the perfect becomes imperfect as well. So we understand there's a separation from it. But then we embrace the knowledge that God sent his son into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to pay the bill for our sin. The Bible says that the wage of sin or the consequence of sin is death, eternal death. But that, that bill was paid because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to pay that bill for you when he died on the cross. Your bill is paid. Uh, did you know that you actually don't even need the Bible to know that Jesus died on the cross? Did you know that that's like a well-documented historical event? But, but, but the disagreement is what happened when he died on the cross. The Bible says that he paid your bill. Not only is your penalty for sin paid, but you also have a home in heaven. Eternal life because God raised him from the dead. He defeated your biggest problem, sin, and your biggest enemy, death in the person and work of Jesus. So when you put your trust in that simple message, you receive God's grace, and God gets the credit. That's why it says not by works so that no one can boast. He gets the credit, and what that does on our end is it produces worship and gratitude in our hearts. So if you wonder when we sing songs in church, why people sing out loud and raise their hands, it's because our bill has been paid. We've been given this incredible gift and it produces worship and gratitude in our hearts. Will receiving God's grace change the way you live? Will it make you live differently? Yes. But not because you've been guilted into being good. Uh, I actually don't know that I'm that capable of being good all the time. I think I'm capable of being a you know, relatively nice person and if I compare myself to the really bad people, then I look like I'm really good. Uh, you know, I usually sort of joke about like, Hitler being a baseline. Uh, we're all crushing it if that's who we're comparing it to. But that's not the comparison that we, we need to make. Following Jesus, receiving God's grace, will change you because now you're free to live like someone who is loved and forgiven and valued by the God of the universe. You don't have to look over your shoulder. You don't have to beat yourself up. You just run to God's grace over and over. If knowing, <laughs> it works like this. This is the thing I always see. It's amazing to me to know that God loves me, but I think that most of the time, I'm a pretty nice guy. I can get along with people most of the time. But think about the fact that God loves the worst version of you. The moment of your life, if we just like flashed up on the screen, you would be like horrifically ashamed and probably run out of the room. God saw that and he loved you and wanted you anyway. How about that? That's amazing grace. So don't work for it. The work is done. Jesus did the work. Just receive it by faith. Foundational truth number five. God has good things in mind for me. This is my favorite verse in all the Bible. Sorry to the guy with the John 316 sign at the football game. <laughs> Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. It says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has good things in mind for me, okay? So let me just unpack some of the language in that. The word that's translated up there, handiwork, we are God's handiwork, is the Greek word poema. It's obviously, I think, somewhat obviously, where we get our word poem. It can also be translated masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. I'm not really an artistic guy. Poem might work good for you. That might work really well. 
don't know, for you to think, oh, that's, oh, that's so beautiful. It just doesn't work for me. But a masterpiece. Like, I, I can appreciate craftsmanship when somebody's just really good at something and they can do things that I can't do. You're God's masterpiece. When God looks at you and, and sees you in your good moments, in your bad moments, at your worst moments, he doesn't see a clumsy, pitiful loser who can't get themselves together. What does he see? He sees his masterpiece. That might be hard for some of you to accept. There might be a few of you who are like, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I can't help you. But for the rest of you, I'm guessing you may not see a masterpiece all the time when you look at your life. When you think about who you are and where you've been and what you've done and said and how you've treated other people and you may not think of yourself as a masterpiece, but that's what God sees in Christ because he sees you through the perfection of Jesus. That's a crazy thing to try and get your head around. In fact, I think if you just spent the rest of your life trying to get your head around that, you could follow Jesus all the way into eternity with basically just the information in these 10 verses. So hear me on this. No matter how far you've gone, God's grace goes Okay, don't, don't give yourself the credit of thinking you have the power to screw it all up beyond God's ability to forgive you and love you and nurture you back to life. Okay? Don't give yourself that much credit. Don't fight God's grace. Receive God's grace. When he says we're created in Christ Jesus, uh, the implication of, of that word in Greek is the idea of being recreated or created anew. In fact, some translations actually translate it created anew. Jesus makes us new. Think about the implication of that. Your life begins anew when you put your faith in Christ. The idea that he, you put your faith in the knowledge that he paid for my sin is, is pretty amazing stuff. If you need to be made new, you can have a new start. If this is your 10,000th new start, you, you can have it. It's available to you. You can have it because God has good things in mind for you to do with the rest of your life. Through all of it, you're the passive agent. It's a free gift. God does the work. It says God has, um, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not created in Christ to work. Not created in Christ to perform, but to do good works. God has good things for you to spend your life on. He wants you to cooperate with his plan for you. He doesn't have a life of begrudging service to him in mind for you. He has good things in mind. Now, depending on your disposition and your background and just where you came from and your life experiences, it might be hard for you to think that God is good. He wants to lead me to life. But it says right there in black and white, he has good things planned for you. And he's always had good things planned for you before you were ever even born. He has a life of celebrating his goodness and mercy in mind. A life of being confident and secure because you know that no matter what happens to you today, tomorrow, the next day, the story ends well for you. He has eternity in mind. It all ends with you at his house. That's where the story's going. That's good news. He has a life of participating in his family. I don't think there's anything else that could bring all of these particular people into this room together. There are many of you that I know simply because of Jesus. 
He has a life of living under his grace and blessing in mind for you. And none of it is contingent on you being better. It's all contingent on him. It's contingent on you receiving the gift of his mercy. So here's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to stand with me. And Jessica is going to come back up. She's going to send us out here in just a second. And then she's going to bolt for the connect table. Uh, I want to just give you this opportunity for the first time or the thousandth time to say yes to Jesus. Because he's not asking you to work for him. He did the work for you. The cross does not have to help on its own. Okay? Jesus did the work already. He said in Matthew 7, Pastor Rick quoted this verse earlier, he said, Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I want to invite you to start building on a solid foundation of faith in Christ, who overcame your greatest problem to sin, and he overcame your greatest enemy, death, when he died on the cross and got raised into life. I want to invite you to start putting your faith in Christ as God's answer to your brokenness. And then just know that you are accepted, that he loves you. So I want to pray for you, and Justice is going to send us off. We're going to sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I want to just invite you, make it a declaration, not just a song, a declaration. Stake your claim on that before we go. Lord, thank you that though we are broken, your plan has always been to redeem us. Your plan has always been to love us and bring us back to yourself. So you sent your son to pay the bill, to close the gap between us. And all we have to do is receive your grace. So God, we do that today. We just want to say yes to you again. Lord, thank you for your love and your mercy. God, I pray that by your spirit and your presence, you would help us to know that we are your children, eternally loved and accepted by a good heavenly father. We pray through Christ. Amen.